So, um, anyway, we're going to be in Matthew 19. I've appreciated as Dad has walked us through uh, Matthew's narrative of the Passion Week. Um, but we're going to be at an earlier spot in Matthew this morning um, in Jesus' ministry. I said Matthew 19, I meant Matthew 12. Enough said, right? Um, this is this is, this is why I'm not teaching any longer. They just would not have allowed it. Um, Matthew chapter twelve, verse thirty-eight. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, "Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you." But he answered them, "An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign." But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let's pray together. Father, as we turn to Your Scriptures this morning, give us wisdom as we look at the incredible truth of the resurrection of the Son of God. I pray this morning that You would use this account to remind us of how amazing it is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, could be dead ever and then to be raised and what it means that we now have life, that we now have hope that the penalty of our sins is gone and we have a mission. We have a mission to go and tell. And so, Father, I pray that You would use this account in this brief time this morning to encourage us, uh, but also, Father, to stimulate us to move forward and reach out. I pray for that. Only You can do that, and we trust in You. We ask all these things to You, Father, through the strong name of Christ our Lord, that Your Spirit would apply them by Your Word. Amen. Well, I've entitled this... Uh, brief sermon, and Asher has made sure that I always say brief when talking about this sermon. Um, resurrection as regurgitation. Resurrection as regurgitation. And hopefully at the end you'll understand. So as we gather this Sunday morning as believers in Lord Jesus Christ, we gather on a Sunday versus all the other six days for one reason. Because we believe that all of human history was massively and forever altered when Jesus of Nazareth rose from the grave early on a Sunday morning around this time 2,000 years ago. We believe that the event of the resurrection not only happened, but it is itself proof positive that Jesus Christ is the promised and the forever King. And yet, obviously, there are many who disagree with us. There are those who think there is not sufficient evidence, there's not enough signs that the resurrection really occurred. In fact, many religious studies 
professional academics make their careers out of questioning the proof of the resurrection. And they're essentially arguing that our belief that the resurrection happened isn't there, and therefore our claim that Jesus is king lacks sufficient evidence. But this, it is not new. Jesus has been questioned by the elites from the very beginning. He was questioned by the religious studies academics in his own day, known as the scribes and the Pharisees, as they wanted a sign for him to substantiate his claims. That's the point of the text we're looking at this morning. That is what it is about. The religious elite wanted a sign that Jesus could actually be trusted. Now, take note. This occurs later in Jesus' ministry. By this time, He has healed multiple people. He's cast out many demons. He's shown dominion over the seas. He sent a few fishermen a multitude of fish. He fed a multitude of people with a few fish. He walked on water. He turned water into wine. He raised the dead. He healed the untouchable with a touch. He healed a woman who barely touched him. He told people where they'd go before they went. And he told a woman where she had been when he first met her. And the list could go on. And the Pharisees stand before him and ask the question, what sign do you have to authenticate your ministry? This arrogant unbelief leads the religious elite of his day to be called by Jesus an adulterous and an evil generation. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't deny them a sign. Nor does he point to the plethora of past signs like I just did. Instead, he points them to a single future sign. He points them to his bodily resurrection. <laughs> you cannot help but appreciate the irony here that one of the biggest reasons that contemporary academics deny the claims of Christ is the single sign that Jesus gave to substantiate himself. Jesus explains that if wicked pagans had been given the signs that the religious leaders had already been given, then they would have already believed and repented. But I think in this passage, Jesus gives us an incredible gift by, by pointing to the sign of the resurrection. He does so not by simply talking about the resurrection, but by comparing it to the sign of Jonah. Look with me at verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So why does Jesus draw this comparison between himself and Jonah? And so we're going to focus our attention this morning. So Jonah lived in the latter part of the 700 B.C.s. He was from a small town right outside of Nazareth. You know anybody else who's from the town of Nazareth? That's right, Jesus. The story of Jonah is told in the small four-chapter book of the prophet Jonah. In chapter 1, God calls Jonah to go on a short-term mission trip eastward to the city of Nineveh. 
to call out against their wicked ways. Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. These are the very people who would sack Israel about two days after, two days, two decades after the time of Jonah. They were a very, very wicked people. Actually, they're still known today for their artfully cruel ways of torturing people to death. So God calls Jonah to go tell them they are wicked. And as you can imagine, Jonah's not but so excited about that. Instead of catching the next camel train east, Jonah catches the next boat west. He's intentionally disobeying God. Jonah gets on board this boat, goes to sleep in the bottom of the boat. Meanwhile, a huge storm blows up. And the experienced sailors are scared for their lives. You recall any other stories about experienced sailors scared in a storm and a man sleeping on a boat? Interesting. Through an interesting exchange, the sailors are able to discern that the storm was divinely appointed to attract the attention of a disobedient prophet on board. And after all their efforts had failed, they realized the only way to dismiss of the storm is to dismiss of Jonah. And so they did. Jonah is hurled overboard where he's immediately swallowed by a big fish. And there, in the belly of a big fish, he spent three days. Like Jesus spent three days in the grave. Hence, Jesus draws the comparison between his time in the grave and Jonah's time in the belly of a fish. Chapter 2 is a long, chapter 2 of Jonah, it's a long, though beautiful and poetic, prayer of confession. On Jonah's part, offered from the gut of Jonah, from the gut of the fish. The chapter ends with God pulling the eject lever and Jonah taking a wet ride to shore. Like Jonah was ejected from the belly of the fish, so Jesus Christ was ejected from the grips of death. As hard as it is to believe that God would allow a man to be swallowed by a fish, oh, so much harder it is to believe that God could allow His precious Son to enter to the depths of the grave. And yet it was no more difficult to remove Jonah from the belly of a big fish for God than it was for God to remove His Son from the grave. And chapter 3 begins with God asking Jonah now a second time to go to wicked Nineveh. And this time, Jonah makes it there in a hurry. Jonah gets there, and Jonah gets the shock of his life. And that's quite a statement about a guy who spent three days in the belly of a fish. Instead of the wicked Ninevites seeking to kill him, I really think Jonah thought he had a one-way trip there. Instead of them seeking to kill him, they immediately repent. And they turn from their wicked ways. Chapter 4 is the story of Jonah pouting. Because God is just as merciful and gracious as Jonah thought he would be. And Jonah's upset that these Ninevites have a chance to repent. Chapter 4, God, the end of chapter 4, God chastises Jonah for his lack of compassion for the previously unreached Ninevites. 
So is that his background? Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is the story that Jesus tells us compares to his resurrection. I love the comparison Jesus makes here between himself and Jonah as it offers us a corrective instrument on how to read the Scriptures. On the one hand, it instructs those who don't want to take the Bible literally when it comes to grand stories like Jonah and the fish. While we might find the story hard to believe, Jesus seems to believe every word of it. Then on the other hand, for those who never want to see the figurative nature of the Scriptures, this stands in an example where Jesus certainly saw the Scriptures in a figurative fashion. He sees the story of Jonah as being a story that really happened and a story that points to his resurrection in the future. So that gives us some license to press a little bit on the comparisons. Let's do that together. First, will you notice that the disobedience that disobedience drove Jonah into the belly of the fish while obedience drove our Lord Jesus into the grave as you consider Jesus praying in the garden my father if this cannot pass unless i drink it your will be done that is the ultimate level of obedience. Anyone who thinks Jesus was indifferent or ambivalent about going to the cross has failed to take seriously the agony of Him praying in the garden. He was clear concerning His complete dread of the command to go to the cross. And He was just as clear about His willingness to obey. Like Jonah, Jesus feared being delivered into the hands of wicked men who would torture him and kill him. Unlike Jonah, Jesus obeys. He doesn't run from the hands of his would-be tormentors. He delivers himself into their hands. When Jonah arrived to meet his fate in Nineveh, he found himself spared by the mercy of God from the hands of wicked men. Jonah found himself surprised by the kind treatment of wicked men. When Jesus arrived into the hands of the most religious men on the planet, God did not spare His Son his precious son, from their wicked plans. Instead, Jesus, the most innocent man on the planet, received no mercy at the wicked hands of those who claimed to honor his father's name. So while disobedience drove Jonah into the belly of the fish, obedience drove Jesus to the cross. Where Jonah found mercy, Jesus, our Lord, found vile cruelty. Second, notice the case of Jonah. In the case of Jonah, 
the storm was brought about solely, solely because of Jonah's single act of disobedience. And his single act of disobedience brought about a storm so fierce that it almost cost all the innocent sailors their lives. On the other hand, the furious storm of God's wrath as demonstrated on the cross was the result of God's judgment for every act of disobedience of those who would be saved. And Jesus' single act of obedience saved the lives of everyone but Him. The only innocent one. Picture this. All of those who are saved are loaded onto a boat. Let's call it an ark. We're floated out into the sea of God's judgment. On judgment day, a storm of God's wrath stirs up the nastiest storm we've ever seen. There's no place to run. There's no place to hide. And then we happen upon Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. He's asleep at the bottom of our boat. He's sleeping. Because when He hears that we're floating into the waters of God's judgment, He's got absolutely nothing to fear. Nothing at all because He is perfectly righteous. As the storm begins to rage, we wake Jesus. And He explains that the storm is due to the wrath of God over our disobedience, over our sin. But unlike the story of Jonah, this storm is due to everyone else's disobedience not the sleeping visitor. So what is the right move? What should happen here? The same thing that happened in the story of Jonah. All the disobedient ones should be thrown overboard so that the innocent ones survive. That's what's right and that's what's good. But amazingly, Amazingly, the opposite happened. And we have the Gospel. Instead, in the Gospel, it is the innocent one who was tossed overboard while all the disobedient ones are saved on the boat, on the ark. When the innocent one is tossed overboard, he is not rescued by the belly of a fish. No, he is dropped into the very eye of the storm of God's wrath and he drinks down every drop of the pain and the punishment. We celebrate Easter this morning because it is the amazing story that God did not leave the Lamb of God at the bottom of the sea. Instead, he showed all of those on board even more kindness by raising Him to become the captain, captain of our ship. We do not wor worry now that we will run this ship aground. 
We're not worried that we'll stir up another storm of God's wrath because we have the King of Kings to captain our ship. He is the captain who will lead us home. He will shepherd our souls. What a story. What a perfect sign of the mission of Jesus. Finally, when comparing the story of Jonah and the mission of Jesus, we have to see what happens to Jonah after he's ejected from the fish. What does Jonah do? Well, he heads to the wicked, unreached people, and he preaches what? Repentance. And amazingly, amazingly, many of them repent. So how does this compare to the story of Jesus? Well, what was, we've already heard it this morning, what was the instruction of Jesus after His resurrection? He told His followers to do what? Go. Go to all the nations. Go to all the wicked, unreached, and make disciples. Jesus represented us as He was tossed into the wicked storm of God's wrath. And yet, the way that God has orchestrated this, we now represent Jesus as we are sent out to spread the incredible news of the Gospel. So inasmuch as any of us believe, it's because someone has acted like Jonah to us as we each are some of the wicked who need to hear the Gospel. And so the question remains, how? How will we respond to the resurrection? Let's close by looking at Jonah 4. I'm going to read it. It's short. I'm going to read it now. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Remember the end of chapter 3, they, they repented. Chapter 4 is his reaction. Not happy. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than it is to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out to the city and sat at the east of the city and made a booth for himself there, a covering, a tent. He sat under it in the shade till he could, till he should, so he could see what would happen and become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. He made a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of this plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. It attacked the plant so that it withered. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Verse 9, God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for this plant? And he said, Yes, 
I'd do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, which there are more than 120,000 persons who, you, who do not know their right hand from their left, and also a lot of cattle? Jonah goes and he pitches a tent to watch and see what's going to happen. He's mad as God was just as merciful, just as gracious as he was afraid God would be. He seems to be completely unfazed by the irony that if God was not merciful and gracious, he would have died at sea. Jonah ends up pouting because God took away the temporary comfort that God had provided to Jonah through this little plant. God points out that Jonah seems to care more about this little plant than he does for the lives of those represented in Nineveh. I'm not going to tell you that I did not enjoy comparing the story of Jesus and Jonah. That was a lot of fun. I'm going to tell you I did not enjoy comparing Jonah 4 and myself. How many ways Am I holding on to the very comforts that God has provided me just like God provided the plant to Jonah? Comforts of my home, my job, my family, my things, my routine, and in so doing, ignoring the call of the risen Jesus to go and make disciples. I may look down at Jonah for voicing his lack of compassion for the unreached, but surely that's no worse than my indifference to do something to see those who are lost come to hear the story of Jesus. What is the little plant that I'm holding on to? It was born up in a day. It will go in a night. And the people of Nineveh are dying. Studying this passage has convinced me that the missionary mandate is the empty tomb. For all those left on board, saved by the sacrifice of Jesus our captain, we must now represent Him to the lost and to those who have never heard. We cannot let the very things He has given us as our comfort to keep us from going. Do we see it? Do we believe it? The missionary mandate is a mandate for a few. It's the few who have been so fortunate to be on the ark of God and saved from their sin. But it is a mandate for every one of those few. May the empty tomb not leave us on the beach somewhere between Tarshish and Nineveh. Would it lead us to work to go, to work to sin, to pray, to give, to see the wicked and unreached find out that there is still room on 
the ark of God. Let's pray.